Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right, gentlemen, kind of an emergency OK computer session here. We have the big guns. We have Rick Eitzman of First Mark Capital. We had to bring in a very also big gun, Guy Adami from On the Tape Podcast. I'm Dan Nathan. This is OK Computer. Listen, guys, we got to talk about what the actual you-know-what is going on with tech stocks. There's definitely some stuff going on in the private markets or yet to happen in private tech that might be affecting public markets. But first things first, Rick, you've been on a whirlwind tour of America. What's the word out there, man? So I've been back and floating around as COVID is now officially over. You see that on the airports and you see it in every single hotel. You go in and there's a line at the complimentary coffee bar in the morning everywhere and people are done and there's no masks and it seems like we've moved beyond it. That's the good news. Wait, is America in a situation where we have coffee lines? Guy, you remember the bread lines back in the day when you started trading here. You just said complimentary coffee lines. In the Dust Bowl. You know, I wasn't trading at the time. I was helping my folks. I was in elementary school during that, but close, Dan. It's a while ago, but I appreciate it. I just had to get you in here for a second. All right. So wait, we're in the endemic. The travel situation is back. Travel situation is back. We're recording this here Tuesday morning. All the travel stocks are up. You can't get an Uber and you can't get an airplane flight now, which in general is a good thing. You say that, but I just saw that Lyft is putting in fuel surcharges. That's not something that people had on their dance card for some of these rideshare companies. All of this is coming together in a way. It's kind of interesting that there's tons of angst because All of the reasons that people felt really excited about all of these secular shifts going on in technology, they were being rewarded as it relates to the marks, whether it be in their private market investments or in the public markets. And now all of that has kind of come crashing down in the very near term. Is that a fair statement? It's very fair. And I think you had a great bridge there of Uber now doesn't have free capital helping to finance your ride. DoorDash doesn't have free capital helping you get your burger to your house. So they're actually charging you the appropriate cost to have their business model work. And as that shakes out, you're going to see what the real supply and demand curves look like. And they probably won't be as rosy as the valuations were back in November. And I think what you're seeing now is also that floating back to the private markets. Let's talk about November, because this is really important. This is what I want to get Guy's take on. This is why you're here, Guy Dami, other than the pretty face that our listeners can't see right now. But in November, what happened? We had the NASDAQ that looked like it was blowing off. We had that late November day. It was making new all-time highs. It was really leading the S&P 500. And then we had this situation all of a sudden where the Fed and investors in particular started repricing the potential for the Fed to go from their very easy 
crisis monetary policy of the last year and a half, maybe almost two years or so, to a stance that was really going to be more hawkish, okay, pulling away the punch bowl and really focused on battling inflation, which I think Guy will tell you, we're not going to get into a big Fed conversation here. They were very late to acknowledge the brewing impacts of inflation post the massive disruption in supply chains, disruptions in demand, and then the massive disruption of the monetary and fiscal stimulus that was flowing all over the world. Guy, that was ground zero for this tech carnage, correct? No doubt about it. And it happened late November. It coincided with the Omicron variant being basically talked about the day after Thanksgiving. So those things lined up. And obviously, the market took some time digesting it. Listen, December was a great month for the market. And people say, well, wait a second, the Fed pivoted, blah, blah. Well, seasonality sort of took hold and clearly that was going on. Now I think people have realized the Fed's no longer underwriting this market and the Fed is no longer your friend. And if you think they're going to backstop it, I think you're wrong. And quite frankly, I would submit if you do the math and if you really look at this, Rick, they're probably about three and a half, maybe four years behind the curve in terms of where real inflation is, Real wage growth is the entire thing. They've screwed the pooch, as they say. They have. And then how hawkish could they be, though, with everything else going on in the world, including the Ukraine? That's kind of the point. Listen, markets are manic. There was a great interview. We all know Gavin Baker of Atreides Management. He was on with Patrick Oshag Hennessy on his Invest Like the Best podcast in late January. And he was talking about all of these investors who were private tech, I think for the most part, who made their way into public markets. They call it crossover investing and everything like that. And he was saying, this was in late January. At that point, we'd only had a few weeks of downward volatility. And he said, welcome, my friends from the private markets into this insanity that is the public markets because you are going to be judged every day and none of it makes any sense week over week or month over month. And here we are now getting towards the back half of March. We have the NASDAQ that's down a little more than 20% from its all-time highs. Some would call that a bear market. The S&P 500 down 13%. And what's going on right now, specifically in the NASDAQ with dozens, if not hundreds of stocks, is where price action is now divorced from fundamental reality. And I'm one wondering, Rick, whether through your travels, and I know you're talking a lot of different people in the investment universe and the tech space and the entrepreneurial space, are people now worried that this is not a good time to be investing? Is it not a good time to be focused on some of these moonshots where maybe it might take a much longer time to see that sort of appreciation as it relates to in the stock market or in private market valuations moving higher? I think the memo is getting out there. It's clearly in the crossover guys. It's clearly in the growth sectors. Being to see deals getting repriced. We're seeing people pull out of deals. And probably most significantly, we're seeing people pull out of the market. So if you were a public market investor that you had a sleeve or you had a carve out for privates, you're out of that business. You're down 20, 30%. There was a guy who had 30% of his fund in a stock that's gotten cut in half. I don't think he's going to be aggressive in the private markets looking for a multiple arbitrage or liquidity arbitrage. That arbitrage was gone even in 21. There was actually a private market premium for the first time in a long time. And so that trade's gone. And now what you're seeing is all the tourists or people who were not professional investors in the private markets, they could be crossover funds, public funds, family offices are now fleeing the building. 
So, Rick, I used to get invited to parties. I was always so excited. And when you invited me to OK Computer a few months ago, I was thrilled. I wore my best stuff. and Just like right now. Just like right now. But the last time we spoke, I asked you, and we had an interesting conversation. I said, in your seat, given the amount of liquidity, given where valuations are, it must be extraordinarily difficult to find deals that are interesting. And I'm sure you find yourself walking away from a lot just based on the fact that other people just bidding things up indiscriminately. And I'm sure over that time, you found yourself scratching your head. My question now is, are things still inflated or have they come to some semblance of normalcy? Or do we still have some ways to go? We still have some ways to go. So as I said last year, probably around the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, I was kind of scared. When you see indiscriminate pricing, it's time to be scared when other people are being greedy. And we definitely turned it down a little bit over the course of 21. Right now, I think you're seeing the difference in the public and private markets is the private markets are a high bid market. There's not real liquidity where there's multiple bidders and multiple sellers. You just need one person to price a deal in large part. So there's some folks who haven't quite gotten the memo or they're afraid to get the memo or they have other conflicting interests and they want to see high valuations and therefore they're able to price maybe overly aggressively because they believe they're being contrarian or they're even marking themselves up and they're artificially inflating some deals. But in general, that's a small minority of the market and that's probably down significantly across the board. And you're seeing deals being priced more rationally, which I would probably say goes back to seven, eight years ago, single digit type valuations and where you fall in that single digits depends on the quality of the business. It's really interesting that you mentioned that. And Guy, I forgot that Rick came on, I think in August and on the tape. And at the time, you sounded a bit cautious. And what was interesting to us is that VC funding was still screaming as far as incoming capital into the space and then deals being funded. And then the stock market from a public standpoint, the NASDAQ was still screaming. And then you came on again in December and you kind of reiterated some of those same points that you just made right now. And it seems fairly prescient. That's a word that Guy Adami likes to use. He can't spell it, but he knows how to say it and use it. Guy and I have known you for 10 years. And for some listeners who haven't heard this, we first met you on the set of Fast Money. I think it was November in 2013. The week though that Twitter went public and you came on and we rarely, Guy, we rarely had VCs on back then. We were literally just focused 90% of the time on public markets and then the rest was maybe a bit macro. And it was really interesting because the Chiron, as they call it underneath Rick said, what is the next internet company to go public, which I thought was really funny in a way. But I guess I want to ask you this is like, you've been around for a long time. Guy and I know your history. You started in making private investments in tech in the wake of the dot-com implosion. You've seen multiple cycles here. And my question is this, time. Time is the thing, at least in public markets, that makes the shakeout thing investable in the post-dot-com crash and then in the post-financial crash. It was time. It took at least 18 months to two years of new lows and valuations and sentiment has to get really bad. And that didn't happen in the COVID thing because we threw $4 trillion of fiscal and monetary at it. What happens now? Is this going to be a real shakeup or is there just going to be such a demand for alternative investments? And because we're at this intersection of all of these technological innovations that have going on that I know First Mark is very focused on. Are we going to likely see this as a bit of a blip? There'll be markdowns, but then we just keep moving forward in the private markets. I think there's more of a hard reset on valuation and a hard reset on expectations. People are readjusting their business plans 
was looking the other day at seeing what uh, guidance is going to be for 2022, as a lot of companies were completely focused on growth when they did their 2022 budgets, either big companies or small companies. And then very quickly in the beginning of this year, they readjusted in favor of profitability over growth, capital efficiency as the cost of capital has increased tremendously. So I think we're looking at a quarter or two of a price reset, maybe another set of time when people realize this is the price reset and this is the new normal. But I think if you look at this 10, 20 years from now, you're going to see this as a blip. But sometimes those blips last quarters or maybe even a couple of years where there is going to be an increase in innovation. There is going to be digital disruption of every industry. It just might not be as fast or might not create as much value in the near term as we once thought. There's the old dynamic of it was really slow that happened all at once. We're still in the really slow part, but we were pricing it like it happened all at once. Guy, here's one for you, bud. All right, so this whole fear of this inflationary spiral, right? And Rick just mentioned this, is that companies are going to be rethinking both private and public CapEx plans. You have all the inputs that go into whether it be wages and a whole host of other things. And then if you're worried about revenues coming in, you have costs higher. So you're going to readjust a little bit because everyone's got to show a certain level of growth. And so I wonder if you do see a little bit of stagflation as it relates to innovation because of that. But then the other thing is there was an article, I think on Bloomberg earlier today, talking about how on the public side of things, buybacks are supposed to hit a record in Q1 of this year and maybe hit $1 trillion, which would be an all-time high. What does that speak to you? Obviously, companies are trying to manage their balance sheets. They know that they have a lot of cash right now and they borrowed at very low interest rates. Interest rates are going higher. So what do they do? Rather than deploy it in things that they may not be certain will add to the bottom line, they're going to manage their earnings. And what does that say to you, Guy, at this stage of the game as far as public markets. Alchemy is the word. Alchemy. I can't spell that one either. I know there's a C in prescient, and I'm pretty sure there's a C in alchemy, but that's what it speaks to. And listen, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of buybacks, but IBM was sort of the poster child for buybacks for years. And to me, it was just them getting lazy because quite frankly, money was cheap. Buy back the stock. Stock goes higher. They don't have to focus on their business. And the world passes and buy. Again, That is one of the unintended consequences of the largesse of the Federal Reserve. It made corporate America lazy, number one. Number two, you're talking about inflation. Last night, and last night was Monday night, I found myself watching The Bachelor with my wife. That's on ABC, the American Broadcasting Corporation. Why do I mention that? Because over the two-hour period that show was on, I saw no fewer than four commercials for The Great Wolf Lodge. Not to get people to go there, but they're looking for people to hire. Come join our team. I've never seen that before. Then we put on NBC. That's the National Broadcasting Corporation. And we watched a show called Endgame. And guess what? Over that hour-long show, I saw the same commercial twice. What does that mean? It speaks to exactly that. Companies can't find people to hire. They have to raise wages by definition. That's the final piece of the inflation puzzle. It's coming, and it's coming at a time where growth is going to slow. And there are no arrows in the quiver of this Federal Reserve to defend against that, Dan. But Guy, have you ever seen a period of time where people were so excited about the potential for the reflation trade after some sort of event? In this one, it was COVID and the pandemic and the lockdowns. And that thing, originally, when they started throwing lots of cash at it, both monetary and fiscal, back in early 2020, no one thought it was going to go this long. Nobody thought we'd be in 2022 and still thinking about this. We thought we'd be in this boom phase for 
the global economy. And it's really interesting because right now, the tightening that's going on in monetary policy, now the fear has switched the other way that we're actually going to hike into a recession. And I think it's really important to remember that in the spring of 2000, when the stock market, the NASDAQ bubble in particular, topped out, what was the Fed doing there? They were tightening to avoid inflation and risk assets at the time. Nobody saw a recession coming. And then they were hiking in 2007. Why? Because the risk asset bubble in housing and related financial instruments were getting to a point where they finally were worried. And in each instance, they hiked into a recession, right? And the economy was booming. And that's the thing that I think is really important to remember. Things feel great when things are great, but it's that thing around the corner, Rick. And I know that you've been on dozens of boards over the years. You were a mentor to a lot of founders of really innovative businesses and ideas. How do you help them get their arms around a period right now? Because we haven't really seen markdowns yet in private market valuations. And I'm talking earlier stage, and I know that that's really where you can make your most impact and where you have over the years in early stage companies. But this is probably a really difficult time for founders because the uncertainty is just at a maximum. And they haven't seen it before. A lot of our founders are in their 20s and 30s. They don't remember the financial crisis or they were in college or they remember it like we're reading about ancient history. And it's different than living through, and it's definitely easier than managing through that. So they don't know what to do. And oftentimes, when people don't know what to do, they just keep doing what they were doing before, even though they know that won't work. What we're trying to do is provide some scaffolding, some peer support, some board support to say, hey, the world's changed. Here's what happens. Your cost of capital just went up significantly. Your milestones matter more than ever because you're going to have to hit those milestones to get to that next financing or to eliminate financing risk in your company. And you're not going to have people calling you up, offering you money every day. We had companies that had several offers a day for capital per day. And I think that's gone. I've lived through the early aughts, both operating and investing then and the financial crisis, which was a pretty short-lived thing. And you're scraping together every nickel you can. You look for companies that you can see the nickels running out the door screaming because they were being squeezed so hard. And I think we might not be getting back there, but people are going to appreciate a buck much more than they have in the last cycle. Another word that has a C in it, Rick, is copious. And I didn't take copious notes in school, but I know you took some copious notes for this show. And you have some eye-opening statistics that you're bringing with you right now. It's really amazing that there is a disconnect. And for the first time in my career, going back to the 90s, there's a public market premium and a private market premium. And the private markets got ahead of the public markets. And I was just looking at a tweet from Mark Goldberg, which said that Klarna, which is a European-based payments company, similar to a little bit of a firm, had a greater value than the combined current market cap of Robinhood, Opendoor, Marketa, Affirm, Toast, Blend, and SoFi. What you're seeing is there's a lot of room for those to recross. And I think that means, sadly, there's a lot of pain for a lot of private market investors coming as the whole market normalizes. And that's anecdotal, clearly, but that's become, to a certain extent, the norm. And you just have to ask yourself, how long does it take to work through the excess that you spoke to in that, again, anecdotal story, but just in terms of the largest that we've seen over the last, we could talk about a couple of years, quite frankly, it's the last 13 years or so. 
It's been since the financial crisis that money has been increasingly free. And therefore, people have treated it like it's free without a cost of capital, investing in their company, buying back their stock, paying folks like money is free. And we kind of have woken up to the fact it's not going to be free. The first time I had a venture investor mention to me in 20 years, a whack the other day weighted average cost of capital, and there's a risk-free rate, and there's a risk premium. And I think when the Fed raises, they're going to say, hey, the risk-free rate isn't zero. And in a time of war, the risk premium isn't zero either. And there's going to be a cost of capital demanded by investors, and that's going to cause a hard reset for some of these companies that might not have been thinking about it. All right. Well, it feels all doom and gloom here. Again, we're taping this on Tuesday. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve, in a very well-telegraphed manner, is going to hike interest rates by supposedly 25 basis points for the first time since prior to the pandemic in 2019 or so. Guy, let me ask you this. So again, we have public markets just bringing lower. It's just to sell every rip here. And it's not that bad yet. I mean, under the hood, it's absolutely horrible. Most stocks are down at least 30% in most of the major indices, yet the S&P 500 is still down 13% only because of the relative outperformance of the massive names, Microsoft, Apple, Google. My question to you here, market participants, do they buy the news? They sold the rumor, do they buy the news once the Fed gives them more clarity about how they're going to move forward with their tightening policy? Guy, are they buying the news tomorrow and Wednesday when Jay Powell comes out and says they are hiking interest rates? The short answer is probably yes. We've seen it before. There's also obviously the minute-to-minute news coming out of Russia, Ukraine. Five minutes, they're having peace talks. Five minutes later, the Russians are negotiating with the Chinese to help them militarily. So you have that ebb and flow as well. So the short answer is yes, I think it's short-term relief rally. But quite frankly, is a paradigm shift in the market. Goldman Sachs recently wrote about a paradigm shift that we've been talking about for months. And that, I think, is simply this. We were forever in this, when the markets sell off, you buy the sell-offs. I think we flipped to when the markets rally, you're looking for opportunity to pare things down. And listen, is it over? I don't know. Not that I want to play stock market here quickly, but a name like Coupa Software, which we never talk about. A year ago, Dan, this was a $380 stock. Today, it's a $75 stock. It's come off 80%. Guy, 65. 65 now. This morning, it was trading at 65. It was off 30% in one fell swoop on guidance. The one thing I'll say, Rick, before we get to your green shoots, because we'd love to hear them here, is that in the NASDAQ in 2000, it topped out in March. There was a 40% rally off of a low. A 40% rally. So there was a bull market in a bear market. And then it made a new low. And then in 2001, it kept on making lower lows, but there were two 40% plus rallies there. There are are bull markets. There's money to be made. Most people are not nimble enough to do it. Tune into Fast Money on CNBC at five o'clock, Guy Dami, because that's where we do a little the fast money. This is more of the slow money trade. But Rick, what are some things that just are piquing your interest here? Because maybe we've just overshot to the downside on certain sectors as far as valuations, baby with the bathwater sort of stuff here. And I'm just curious if there's things that you're starting to register as green shoots here. We always like to be positive. We always like to look at the upside. And definitionally, we're optimists. And in a business where you fail more than you succeed, you have to always be optimistic and you have to always look to the bright side of life. So that's kind of the world we live in every day. And we believe in innovation. You look at the market curve for the last six months and it's ugly. But if you look at the market curve for the last 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, what you're seeing is American innovation and innovation globally 
really driving everything that goes on, increasing productivity, enabling people to do all kinds of different work. And we see a bunch of different sectors that are now being fundamentally rethought about from a digital perspective of real estate and healthcare and financial institutions. That's going to be a driving factor. And those are going to be the macro trends that are really going to reshape the economy. And we're meeting great founders who are excited to do it regardless of how hard it is. Now it's getting hard. You're going to figure out who the real people are. That'll be the beauty of it, Rick. And you've seen this because you invested in these posts, these last two downturns. Amazing people leave companies that they think are left for dead in the public markets. Their options are way out of the way and they go and start amazing companies. And that will be clearly the bright spot of this period. And maybe it happens quicker. Maybe it just accelerates quicker. All right. Well, listen, we are going to be watching and continuing to talk about those innovations that you just mentioned here on OK Computer. Guy Dami, thanks for dropping in, man, and helping us make some sense of this. Yeah. And before we get out of here, Dan, I just want to leave on this note. 50 years ago from my 35th birthday, my family took me to see The Godfather and the movie opened with Enzo the Baker saying, I believe in America. I too believe in America, Rick Heitzman and Dan Nathan. And I know that we will get to the other side of this. Just a little pain along the way, Dan. I love it. All right, Rick, thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. When we come back, I had a great conversation with our good friend, Joe Marchese of Human Ventures. So stick around. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank member FDIC. Dan, you're about 10 months into the Road Body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the Road Body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep, and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Road Body program here, and I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co slash OK. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. Joe Marchese is a co-founder and partner at Human Ventures in New York City. Joe is a multiple-time founder and media executive. Prior to Human Ventures, Joe served as president of advertising revenue for Fox Networks. He was inducted to the Advertising Hall of Achievement in 2016. You've heard Guy, Danny, and I mention Joe on the pod on many occasions. The man, the myth, the legend, Joe Marchese. You're probably one of the most name-dropped people on Risk Reversal Media Podcast. You know that, right? I've heard it. Thank you. And you're actually one of our most loyal listeners. We started, obviously, with On the Tape last year. We just launched OK Computer in December. I think you get name-checked, I don't know, every week or so. Ah, thank you. Twice a week is the goal. Uh, hopefully, you're not falling off your Peloton when you hear your name. 
we finally got you here. We finally got you in the studio. We got a mic on you. You and I spend a lot of time um, without mics in front of us talking about a lot of the same stuff we're going to talk about right now. And I got to say, you and I, I think it was probably late 2020, we started talking a lot about my aspirations and what I wanted to do as far as financial media was concerned and your background in media. You were offering a whole heck of a lot of advice to me and you actually really helped me. At the time, you said, you got to meet my partner, Heather Hartnett of Human Ventures, and we're going to talk about human. We're going to talk about Heather a little bit. You guys obviously incubate a lot of stuff. You invest very early in companies. You see the life cycle of a lot of these things, and you really help these companies. But you help me, and you invest in our company, Risk Reversal Media, and Guy and I are very fortunate for that. So thank you very much. But let's talk about how did humans start? You guys have a very interesting mission statement. We both know a lot of people in VC. Do you call yourself a VC? What do you call yourself? I definitely don't call myself a VC. Heather is really the brains behind the investing side. I'm more of a builder and tinkerer. But you say interesting, and I think that that's a reasonable way to describe it in terms of, I think more and more venture capital has always looked to go earlier and earlier and earlier. You know, you hear things like pre-seed or co-build studios, because that's where you start to get alphas. Like you have to be there as early as possible before the idea is fully formed and it's venture investable. And that's what we love doing. Me in particular, going from zero to one, from just a person in a space and an idea. And so Heather and I formed this, it's got to be seven years ago, with a handshake and just saying, we're going to build a different type of venture firm. It's going to be almost like a sought after co-founder. It's going to be the one people want to build with, but it's also going to be reflective of New York City, which New York City is very diverse and it's diverse in terms of industry. It's the financial capital, it's the media capital, fashion capital, and then it's diverse in types of people like gender, race. And with Heather as the force, and at the time, my company had been acquired, Truex Media, into 21st Century Fox. And we can talk a little bit about that later, but I basically turned around and backed Heather. I was the first person I said, take basically everything made from this and say, I want to back you in founding this new firm, Human Ventures, but I'll have a day job at Fox, a pretty big day job, and you run it. And then she's since lapped me in terms of importance of our investors significantly in terms of the LPs and investors that were in human. But we chased that idea that we would have a more diverse set of founders. We would have a more diverse set of companies that would be not all just tech-centric, but we have everything from baby food to tequila to... Wait, you guys have tequila? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think all your listeners know oh, now. Know. Our <laughs> listeners definitely know that. So every guest of OK Computer yeah. and on the tape, they get a bottle of Como's tequila. We'll talk about that a little bit. I don't know if you have any of those laying around. Well, let's take a step back because we'll definitely get to human because you guys are going to be entering a new phase too. And I want to hit all that. But You just said you sold the company to Fox. How did you get in the media space? What were your areas of expertise? You and I are out and about a lot. We spent the week before the Super Bowl in LA. You are kind of born to be LA media guy, but you're here in New York. I'm definitely New York down to the core, but... I got into media almost by accident. I was an economics and finance major, and I was only an economics and finance major because I found out that philosophy wouldn't pay my bills if I was a philosophy major. And economics is almost the philosophy of money, and so I found that to be really interesting. And if you think about what advertising really is, is advertising is the market for human attention. I've beat this drum for a long time that the most valuable resource on planet Earth is human attention. What you can get people to pay attention to shapes global politics. It shapes what we buy in commerce. The tragedy that's going on right now in the UK and Russia is it's a battle over attention and what people are telling them it is. That's the thing that is being blocked both ways. But I got into that advertising business through a tech startup lens of, hey, advertising is this broken thing. It's the market for human attention. But at the time it was MySpace. The people who are garnering human attention are other people or other publishers. Now in Web3, that would be called the community, I guess. 
But it was really hard to build community back then. That's the interesting part about it. You just mentioned MySpace and think back to the mid-2000s back then. How did you create community that had the potential for ideas to go viral? You were really dependent on a lot of those old media rails in a way. And that's why, to me, MySpace is a bit of a side note. It's a laughing stock sort of thing. Without MySpace, we don't have iterative social platforms. And then the irony is also that YouTube, which really had its moment in like 05 or 06, and I think Google bought them for like a couple billion dollars, which was a massive deal at the time. But that is one of the biggest social networks on the planet right now, and no one saw it that way back then. Yeah, but is YouTube a social network or a video platform with massive distribution? Because MySpace was gigantic. You can say what you want about where it went after, and there's lots of differing opinions, but they structured the deal pretty well. It's just a question of could it continue forever? The difference with MySpace was it was truly a social network. You had graphs of friends that were interacting with each other. That were, you don't really have graphs of friends interacting with each other on YouTube, right? YouTube's more of a platform. But it's discovery, and it's definitely the comment section really drives a lot of behavior, I think, by creators on that platform. So it maybe is not as meshed together as some of the ones that you would think of because the ability to really converse and go back and forth. But virality is something big. And I think virality really is the killer app of social networks right now. I'd love to get your take on this. TikTok is this thing where anybody can go viral. You don't have to be an influencer. You don't have to be some sports star or something like that. And I think that's really where we're going from web two to web three. And then a lot of people are flocking to platforms like that because they feel like they can create community. It's funny that you say Web3 could be the TikTok communities of it all. I think the genius of branding Web3 is Web3 is, guess what? Web3 comes after Web2 no matter what. So I promise you Web3 is next. We'll see where it goes. TikTok's unlike anything we've ever seen before in social media, and I don't think people understand how different it is. You're right. Anything can go viral, but it's not like you don't build follower accounts and then hold them. You don't have your audience. We talk about the algorithm changing. I think I just saw Chris Dixon post this, that the SEO, the Google search algorithm should be opened up for everyone to see, right? Open source, yeah. Okay. And then what about the Facebook algorithm for what goes in the newsfeed and what doesn't go in the newsfeed? The TikTok algorithm is probably the most black of black boxes. How do you know what goes and what people really enjoy? And then what you see on TikTok isn't what I see. And so we're getting to this point more and more where the algorithm is actually in control of distribution. And my argument, and this goes down a long way, which is, that the algorithm is a publisher. The way the people decide what goes on television are publishers and programmers. The algorithm is now a publisher and programmer. But it's purely quantitative where it used to be qualitative. No. What I'm saying is there used to be people in charge of making the decisions about what you saw. Yeah, I've got news for you. There still are. I've got news for you. If it's the end of a month or end of a quarter and let's dial up yeah. and people see more of this and less yeah. of that, that absolutely still the case. Let's go back to that notion of attention because back then though, and again, you said this is a drum that you beat often and I've heard you speak in front of groups or on other podcasts about it and you speak about it in a way that a lot of people, I don't think they have the experience, the mesh between, let's say, media and then tech and then incubating businesses and helping them think about brand and how they grow it a little bit. But it used to be that our attention was always really valuable, but now it really feels like our attention's getting narrower and narrower, being drawn to the things that we know that we like or we're in these small little echo chambers, if you will. When you think about advertising as a corollary for attention, although that's broken in a lot of ways, that's why you get a lot of ad fraud and a lot of junk that's out there. But advertising isn't a vertical. Advertising is the grease for every other vertical. Every startup we have, not everyone, but a majority, are going to end up spending a lot of money on customer acquisition, brand building. And when they're spending money on customer acquisition and brand building, what they're really doing, and most companies have to do this, where they have to cross a chasm, they can use all performance marketing, and then someday they need to be using what's called above-the-line brand marketing. Yeah. 
And it becomes one of the largest expenses of every business you look at. Look at most of the companies that reach scale. And so setting up that you're going to have a brand that attracts people means you need to first reach them. You need to get their attention. And then you need to deliver a message that works. And that's the sequence. And right now, it's very hard. I've had startups go and say, look, I want to go buy my first billboard. I happen to be on the board of a public billboard company. I love out-of-home advertising. They go, how am I going to know if it worked? I'm like, I got news for you. And it's bad news. You don't. That's not how advertising works. The human brain is more complex than we give it credit for. Facebook and Google and Amazon now, to some extent, have convinced the world, if you can't measure it, don't buy it, which makes me think everything that's hard to measure is undervalued. That's a great point. And listen, this is going back to when we started thinking about what we were going to build with Risk Reversal Media. You made those exact points to us. You're not going to go out to brands that are going to support your business and convince them that a performance marketing thing on podcasting, which everyone knows discoverability is really hard, is going to be worth their dollars. But convince them that they want to be associated with you and your brand and the content that you do and the audience that you're going to build over a period of time. And we have amazing sponsors who actually buy into that. We don't even talk about from a performance standpoint, and therefore we're not hawking anything. That is the hardest thing in all of media and the hardest thing to understand for all of emerging tech companies that are building brands and they have to make that transition from being a performance marketer to a brand marketer. And it is this idea of what would be called sponsorship or association because everyone in brand wants to create culture or be culturally relevant. A company's brand is not what it says to its consumers. A company's brand is what one consumer says to another consumer about their brand. And that is cultural relevancy. You need people who aren't even the people who are buying you to know what your brand stands for, because otherwise you're not a brand. If only your customers know what your brand is, that's pure performance. And so then it starts to get messy with what's really wasted media. Is it wasted? Even if you're not going to buy the new Ford Mach-E. I bought it. I, I know. And I took a bath on it. I told you. I just said this on the podcast the other day. It was like the Seinfeld episode, you know, with a smelly car where he just takes the key and gives it to the valet guy. That's what I had to do with that thing. Let's say it needs to convince you later on. Here's all the great things about it, but you're not going to buy it in the short term. But it matters that you at least know what's relevant. And so that idea of cultural relevancy is so important. And that just means that all attention that you get is valuable. It just depends on what you do with it. And so that as a giant currency for brands, and it's the only currency for brands, matters. But the problem is, how do you price it? What's it actually worth? And that's hard. Talk to us a little bit about that transition. So you sold a business that was an ad tech business to Fox, one of the biggest media companies on the planet. And then you stuck around there a little bit. You incubated, it sounds like, your first investment, the first seed round that you invested in was Heather and Human. And so why New York? You were in LA, right? I was splitting between New York and LA. But were you always clear that if you were going to build a business like this, a different sort of investment company focused on private markets, you wanted to do it in New York? I think it was more because Heather, Matt Heather here in New York, loved the city. And like I said, New York has all these characteristics that make it a great place to start a company, but it's a very hard place to start a company. At the time, San Francisco tech was the center of San Francisco. So there was community around tech. You talked about how hard it was before. And there was energy and funding and all these things around tech. New York has all the elements, but things could get lost very easily. And there are some just iconic, great firms like Uniscore Ventures, USV, and these guys that have really blazed the path here. But then after them, there aren't a lot of firms that really stepped up and said, we're going to take the DNA of New York and put it into a venture capital firm. And now you're seeing more and more come here. And so for you guys, because you have a fairly unique model, you don't view yourself as a VC. You're actually starting with some ideas. You're starting with some founders. I mean, one of them that I've gotten to know through you is Groundswell, is Jake Wood. 
tell our listener a little bit about, talk about Team Rubicon. You're on the board of Team Rubicon. It's an amazing organization that Jake started. And then you said to him at one point, and I'll let you tell the story, whenever you're ready to go from philanthropy and doing good, he still wants to do good, but you want to create a business, I'm in. And so that's how it all started. I mean, the literal line to him was, if you want to start a popsicle stand, I'll back it. I'm glad he didn't want to start a popsicle stand because it's hard to justify the venture backing of it. So first of all, Team Rubicon is this amazing organization that retrains veterans because the U.S. has a problem where we create a lot of veterans in the U.S. and we don't do enough for them. And so the idea was to retrain veterans for disaster relief because the other thing we have a problem with is we have a lot of natural disasters. Climate change is affecting the world. And And he's a former Army Ranger, right? Marine sniper. (laughs) But yes, Special Forces. Well, those are fighting words. I just called him a Ranger. If he was here right now. I wouldn't want to fight with him either. He's what, 6'4 or something like that? he's, He's annoyingly tall and handsome for also being a good guy. So he founds this organization, great organization, and the vision that scales Art, who's taken it over, is a Top Gun fighter pilot. It's not like they've stepped down. So I saw the way he ran the business, such precision for the nonprofit world and the organization and his just true leadership. And so I told him whatever it is. And then him and I were going back and forth, and he settled in on this idea that corporate philanthropy makes up a huge portion of all of philanthropy. But it's getting harder and harder for corporates to give away because the world is so polarized. What issues do they give to? If they give, do they get credit from the employees? So his idea was basic. But when we evaluate ideas at Human Ventures, we only have two lenses. Why now? Why you? And the reason why it's why now? Why you? Is the why now is no one has a novel idea. Everyone had the idea to call the car to your phone. But Travis and Garrett had a different way of actually implementing and executing. And the why now was the phone was finally ready for this application. So with Groundswell, it's like, well, everyone wants to give corporate philanthropy and empower their employees. But the why now was now there's this micro donor advised funds and the fintech rails that existed could make it possible to give every employee a donor advised fund. And then the employers would fund it. So it makes it part of employee compensation. So that's the why now. And the why you is because Jake's Jake in terms of his leadership, the people he can bring in. And so Groundswell is a perfect example of where we're just there with the person from the very beginning. And now as it goes forward. So you guys kicked around a lot of ideas or he came with a fairly well refined idea for Groundswell? We had kicked around different ideas long before, but once it hit him, this is what I want to do. And then I helped him shape it. The other thing when you're this early with startups is nobody ends up with the company they started at. If they do, then they're not very creative and they're not very adaptive because the world changes. Six months after you had the idea, technology changed. Gas prices are spiking. I mean, the world changes. So if you think that you're going to start with one idea and that's the same idea you're going to end with, no. And so you guys operate, you and Heather, as a barbell approach. You are not a VC. You are helping in that studio mechanism. And then she's really doing all the stuff that a VC would do. Yeah, Heather's the true investment chops. I've got great pattern recognition for founders, how they can make it, how I can help. But I spend more of my time on the build side. We have a lot of investments at Human that are pure venture investments, where we're purely a smaller check in a round, or maybe we're a lead at the seed round, or just a check into the A round, because it fits our model, wants to be there, but we weren't there at the earliest stages. All right, let's talk about early stages, because you gravitate, obviously, to those. It's become very competitive, and we know that the deal sizes and checks and all the stuff have just been moving up as the markets have been moving up, or interest rates were moving lower. Maybe that had something to do with it too. And it seems like there's a lot of people competing for a lot of that. You're seeing new entrants to the market, but you guys are firmly in that seed precede sort of. Yeah, I think seed precede is where we live. But then also we get asked to be participants in A rounds and some B rounds where they just want us to be part of the cap table. And I think that's the best signal for a VC is when someone in a competitive deal says, we want you on the cap table, we'll make room, what can we do? And we've done multiple of those. I think that the fact that we have the studio and then I would say even more than the studio, there's the brand and network that we have in New York City, I immodestly would say is unparalleled. I mean, we have a stat somewhere. We had 
since the start of Fund One, physically touched 60,000 people. <laughs> Imagine two years of that in COVID, where we've had events and connections. Real quickly, I think half of my COVID tests over the last two years have been to come to human events. Yeah, we've been itching to get back to it. You did it smart. Listen, you guys have a great idea about how to put diverse groups of people together. New York, as you just said, is an amazing place to do it. And New York has had some amazing fits and starts with COVID as hard hit in early 2020. But there's been some amazing periods where I think people like me and you and founders flocked here. That was also one of the things. There were a lot of people coming to New York, leaving Silicon Valley. Talk to us a little bit about that, because it seems like New York was the beneficiary of this convergence of fintech. And obviously, there's a lot of crypto stuff going on. But then really, this web two and a half, it seems like it's firmly implanted here in New York. The network effects are here. You've got companies that have been successful in New York in the Web2 side, and you have a lot of infrastructure companies that have had a lot of success here in New York. And as the industries are coming back online, you're also, this is true everywhere, you have a reset of how office space is going to be used. We're rebuilding our office space at Human to make it more friendly for just people to pop in and out and make it more community-based versus a nine-to-five. Think about how much real estate in New York City is going to be reclassed or retrofitted for new functions. But also, because it has those other industries, like I said, fashion, finance, media, other things that are a source of gravity for New York City for talent, rather than just LA has Hollywood and SF has tech. And now Miami has this crypto Web3 movement. So I'm biased, but I'm long, long New York. I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of the founders that you work with that you back. You just talked about philanthropy as a service. And then we got to go to one that's also near and dear to my heart. I think near and dear to your heart, Comos Tequila. How does a firm like yours back Spirits Company and a brand? And what was unique about it? And we know that there's a lot of money flowing towards celebrity-led things. This is not that. It's a brand that I love. And I think without you and the branding, it's just another tequila. And you know I love Richard Betts, the creator of the actual tequila. But talk to us. How does that come about? So it comes about in two ways. One, our name, Human Ventures. Heather and I had a code when we started Human, a wink and a nod, this person's a great human. And if we said that, you had to take the meeting. That was the rule. And Richard Betts is the prototypical great human. He's an artist at what he does. He's the person you want to be around. He's always present. And he's just master craftsman. He was going to make something amazing. I'd known Richard for 10 years, and it's actually very similar to the Jake Wood story, where it's like, when are we doing something together? And so that's where it starts, is that the great human and a master craftsman. So you know that the product will be quality. The next part of it was, okay, so if we want to build something, how is it going to be differentiated from the market? And then how can we help? And then how does it fit into human in terms of our thesis in the world? And I know we'll get to some of our advisors later, but our thesis is that in 2008, we had a financial recession. Right now, we kind of have a human connection or connectivity recession, contact. And so coming out of COVID and where we are in the world right now, hospitality is a huge theme for us. When people start to gather again and when they travel and how they celebrate good times together. And so that is kind of the way we began to look at what Richard was doing as a specialty in hospitality. And so Comos itself, that was where Richard and I started, which was let's do something different. It's not a celebrity back to kill, although we have plenty of celebrities as LPs and advisors to our company. We said we want the product to be the celebrity. Like I think as a branding exercise, if the liquid is the celebrity, which it is, it's the highest rated tequila ever in the history of tasting panel, the portfolio. And so we said, let's just lean into that and be the thing that people are drinking because it's good, not because celebrity XYZ said to. Then there's the size of the market for tequila. I'll be honest, I never thought I would spend this much time. But what's fun is pattern recognition between businesses. So for a current, a neobank, or sir would have me say, not a bank, but better. 
getting past all the regulation is very hard. But once you're on the other side, best product, best marketing, best brand wins. Same thing with tequila. It's a myth that it's easy to go start a company. You got to be down in Mexico. You have to source product. You have to make something that tastes delicious. Then you have to bottle it. You have to import it. Then you need a route to market in all 50 states. That's very, very hard to do. But once you can get all of that set, best product, best branding, best marketing wins. Well, it's also, I mean, from my experience, just you introduced it to the world or at least to people in your community maybe a couple years ago. It's also about culture. It's not about arrogance. A lot of these brands, they want some mystique around it in a way. It is accessible, but it really is a high-end thing and it is about culture. I know you love doing it, but every once in a while, when I'm being at dinner without you and we're all drinking it, we'll be like, you know, can you leave that bottle on the table? Because it's just cool. So we've talked about two different things on different parts of the spectrum here. So that's fund one. Okay. Is there a sweet spot for you guys? You're going into fund two here. And is there a different narrative? Are you iterating on fund one a little bit? The core themes are exactly the same. They're a little more specific. So as we look at fund two, so fund one is fully deployed and we're looking around saying, okay, what's the biggest opportunity right now? And again, we've talked about plenty of times. There's tons of money going into metaverse, blockchain, web three. And I don't know what the time horizon for those things to be created are. I don't know if it's going to be in three years or five years we're living in the metaverse or three years or five years we're using Bitcoin instead of cash. But I'm positive in three years you're still going to care about your health. I'm positive in three years you're still going to want to meet up with friends for a drink. I'm positive in three years you're still going to care about your compensation at work and how you manage money. So we're seeing it now, a ton of alpha and better deals to be done in the things that we know will be there and big businesses to be built. So we look at these buckets like future of work. So work isn't just where you went to sit from nine to five on a computer. Like it's a lot of your social interactions. It's where you met people that weren't your family or just happened to be your neighbors. So if you unbundled work, there's so many things that come into that. So many of your relationships in your life come from where you worked and people you met. You know this. I think you were there at the summit. We brought Esther Perel, who's a world-renowned relationship therapist. She is a force of nature as an advisor to a VC fund. And even she got up there and said, why would a relationship therapist be an advisor to a VC fund? And the reason is your work relationships, your sales relationships, your fundraising relationships, your employee relationships, everything's upside down right now post-COVID. And so there is just a huge amount that goes into that. So future of work is one, future of money, how you are going to manage your finances. And that can touch on the crypto side of the world, but it's really much more about day-to-day financial health and then your actual wellness and well-being, mental health. Technology has been extractive of mental health in a lot of ways to date. And now you see the whole trend with the comms and the headspaces and people taking that back. So healthy uses of attention and media gets into its own bucket. Let's take one step back here. So you mentioned Stuart Sop, Stuart, founder, CEO of Current. He was on with me a few weeks ago on OK Computer. It was an awesome conversation because I know Stuart through you, A. B, he is a massive supporter of OK Computer as a presenting sponsor. So shout out. Thank you, buddy. But it was really good for me to hear the origin story. But then it goes back to what you said, that code word to Heather is good human. And he's one of the best humans. And he really is trying to build. He doesn't want to say bank like you just said, but he's trying to build this need bank structure. And he's really trying to help a part of, I guess, the global community, because they want to go global here, that are just not served by the current banking thing. So what was it about that that really interested you guys at the time? It's the exact same thing. So Stuart's a perfect example of a beast of a founder. And he was a first-time founder, right? He was, but he had played with the idea of going out and doing something on his own. He was doing Forex trading, had the brains, had the energy. One of my first tests of an early founder is 
can they attract talent? Will people drop everything to come work with them? And he had these people, Trevor's current CTO, ready to drop everything to go work with them. I was like, don't know which direction you're building in. I don't have a background in banking, but I'm in. Let's figure it out. And it changed over time because this was back away. So it's the very, very early days. And he has just adapted as the world has changed stayed on this idea that there are unbanked and underbanked and this market that is going to be better for people for their financial health, financial wellness. Exactly the way we talked about, built that product roadmap out. So they have a social mission. And so that's really interesting. So do you think there were a lot of VCs who passed on it? Because if you're going to compete with these massive incumbents that only care about X's and O's, there's no room for some sort of social mission. I doubt that with current per se, because I think people say anyway, you get people into a banking relationship and there's others out there that are trying to do purely on a social like the aspirations. But I do think writ large with human, we hear that every now and then where people think, oh, that's nice that it has an impact. Oh, it's nice that you have people all say they want to back female fund managers and diverse portfolios. We have a 50% female portfolio by accident. That's what happened when we have Heather running the fund and the team that we have at human. But then they begin to think impact and they don't think huge, gigantic businesses. I usually liken it to organic food. Organic food, a multi-hundred billion dollar business now because people started to care what they put in their bodies. Let's talk about this. What's changed because you were new to the idea when you were raising for fund one? How long ago was that? Three years, I want to say. What's changed in your opinion? You guys are solidly here in this community. And so how are you thinking about things a little differently than fund one? For me, when we were doing Fund One, I was still president of advertising at Fox Networks Group, still worried about the Super Bowl and the World Series hitting their numbers. In 2022, what are the questions that are different that you're going to get from LPs, let's just say, about the environment now? I'd say what's different. One, we're looking at a market that is potentially a bear market coming. In public markets. Yeah, in public markets. Then what is your take on, and Rick Heitzman and I, who Rick's on the pod a lot, he's a co-host here. He says there's usually like a six to nine month lag, let's say, as far as public market valuations working its way into the private market. Yeah. I'm not holding my breath to have lower valuations at the seed stage and pre-seed stage and even A rounds. I'm not worried about And he would say that same thing, whether it's 20 million or 40 million, 50, it doesn't really matter. With the funds that are being raised, especially by the growth funds who are now putting into early stage, getting access to deals and outsized ownership early, which the only way to do that is to be there at the conception and help build and or be invited to the table saying, we want you on the cap table for XYZ reasons. And that's the formula that we have at Human. What I would say is we're doing fun two right now. It's a five to seven year horizon when you're going as early as we are. And I'm licking my chops at the chance to build and work with founders right now because you just put your head down and work. I built through the 2008, 2009 recession and it wasn't fun. It wasn't easy to raise money, but it was certainly easier to hire people and bring talent in. Well, the timing is actually fantastic. If you think about all of these people who are just brilliantly talented, whatever their capabilities are within technology, and if you're at a large public company, maybe a smaller one that recently went public, however they went public, whether it be a SPAC, and your stock has really been cut in half in a matter of months, and there are hundreds of them. So all of a sudden, you're looking at where your options are, your stock options. You're looking at all of the time and energy that you spent. You thought you were going to have this moment at some point in 2022 or 2020, and it's not. And we saw this after the dot-com implosion in the early 2000s, and look at the innovation that came out. So you're all of a sudden in the next, let's say, a year or something, you're going to have some amazingly talented people who are going to start the biggest companies of the next 20 years. That's exactly right. I think restarting or starting a company post-pandemic post back to work in a new hybrid model that's in office versus remote and new talent and new deals with your talent in terms of equity versus comp. 
and then no legacy systems, no legacy revenue lines to protect and say, okay, we're just building for whatever the new world is. And like I said, founders are adaptable. I don't know if it's a joke or just a common line of thinking for me is that the only book a founder needs to read is Stone Soup. And I don't know if you know the story of Stone Soup, but basically it's a children's fable. And they go into a town and the older says to the younger, we're going to teach the town to make soup from a stone. And he goes to the middle, and everyone laughs at him, and then they go back in, and he finds the perfect stone. He builds the perfect fire. And then someone pokes their head out and goes, can you really make soup from a stone? And he goes, well, I can, but it would be better if I had a couple of carrots. And the person, oh, I got some carrots hidden. And then he does it with potatoes and this and that. And the children's lesson from this is that when we all work together, we all eat. The entrepreneur's lesson from this is that guy could not make soup from a stone, but he built something that he got everyone else to contribute what they could contribute to. That's what founders are meant to do, right? And yeah. so in this new world, you're going to find people who say, I could change transportation. If only I had a CTO, I could change transportation. I just need $10 million. You're going to get people who are like, the future of healthcare. You see what Spora Health or Tia Health are doing that we've invested in. We're going to change the model because the world's different right now. I just need this element, that element. And they're magnets for it. Yeah. Well, listen, you're going to be back on the pod. We're going to be talking about just how fun to and the things that you're deploying. And I literally have a front row seat for it. And I feel very fortunate about that. I've gotten to meet a lot of the amazing founders that you guys have backed and worked together with. Got to know Heather and your whole team at Human a great deal. But before we get out of here, we got to talk about one of my other favorite people in the world. She shares a last name with you, and it is Marchese. You used to get mad at me because you would listen to some of the early pods, and it was our friend Ryan Sarver who introduced me to you a few years ago. And I think the first time he said to me, he's like, I'm going to be in New York, and I really want you to meet my friend Joe Marchese. And I'm one of these guys. I'm actually really good with faces and names, but I also register the first time I hear that name. And you used to get pissed at me. You were like, great pod. You text me, but will you just say my fucking name correctly? All right. So Christy Marchese, uh, your wife, she's an amazing person, but she's also an amazing entrepreneur, an amazing founder. Tell me a little bit about that partnership. I joke, I work with a lot of the companies at Human a ton, but there's one that I'm just an intern for, and that would be Kinema. Kinema, the company she's building, is what the future of movie going looks like. The idea for Kinema is as theaters are shutting down in certain places and there's what are called theater deserts, but really those are just areas of the country where there are no theaters to go gather and watch movies. It doesn't even need to be during a window. It could be available on streaming, but you just want to go watch it with other people. Exhibition of film is a great business. Theaters are harder in some places. They support superhero movies in densely populated areas. So now there's boom. We are in the golden age of movie making. How do you sort through it? How do you find it? How do you exhibit them? And so what Kinema is, is basically a movie theater in a box. So anyone can run their own theater. So Boys and Girls Club, a church, a condo. We could host a screening on a Saturday of a movie. So this idea that anyone can be their own movie theater. IRL and virtual. Yeah, IRL and virtual. Just like where Airbnb said, anyone can be their own bed and breakfast. The same idea. Anyone can be their own theater. And they don't need to have a four-walled theater to do it. When you look at the distribution of movies that get theatrical releases versus movies that don't, it's a massive number of movies. And so Kinema is one I'm incredibly excited about. There's a lot of really interesting applications. So you give a great example. It could be a church or a mosque or a, a temple or something like that. Doing something like that, it could be, you know, some sort of nonprofit. But there's also amazing business applications for it, too. And so one night, Christy and I were talking. I think it was at a human event. We have this running joke on On the Tape or Guy Adami and Danny Moses. So Danny was prominently featured in the movie The Big Short, the Adam McKay movie. And Guy calls it The Big Chill. He's never seen it. Guy literally hasn't seen a new movie in a theater, I think, in like 40 years or something like that. But we want to do a risk reversal thing with Kinema where we actually get our community, our listeners together, and we actually watch the big short together. And that would be a really cool thing. So we're going to do that in 2022. That's the idea of eventizing movie yeah. viewing. 
going to movies was an affordable leisure activity. There was a study that Snapchat did prior to the pandemic where they said something like 60% of younger people go to the movies with no idea what they're going to see. Think about that. It is a place to gather and a thing to do, which means back to the human themes of hospitality and community. If you've ever been to a film festival, you see movies that you're never going to press play at home on your Netflix account. Netflix and Amazon and Disney Plus buy up those movies and they end up available to you, but you're never scrolling through Netflix and pressing play. But you feel like a changed person when you sat in a theater and watched this movie, right, with a bunch of, you get a different type of attention, you get a different type of connectivity, you want someone to program and make a night out of it for you. And so the opportunity is looking at as a leisure experience with a huge market and tons of supply of movies. Now you just need the organization of the hosts for demand. That's right. Well, I also think the premise, you hear this thing all the time that Hollywood's not going to make movies like that anymore. Like Licorice Pizza, this Paul Thomas Anderson movie, it's a freaking amazing movie. I saw it in a theater and I would have been so bummed if I saw it on my 75-inch Samsung at home. I would have been. But that being said, if I had somebody who said, hey, I'm going to be hosting this with a bunch of people and making an event out of it, that would have been a perfect place to see it. Exactly. Perfect example, Licorice Pizza, but whole studios. like In the state of Louisiana, I think there's one theater that shows Magnolia Pictures. And Magnolia's not a small, they make amazing movies. You only get to see it at home if you pick it on yourself rather than people eventizing the movie, going experience, which is what the filmmakers want. So I think it's exciting and it's one of those ones that I think has real implications for culture because because shared experiences and what we pay attention to is like how we talk to each other. Yeah. Dinner in a movie is a trope for a day. Let's have something to talk about and something to do. Like I said, she's one of my favorite people. I got to know her, obviously, around the same time. I got to know you a few years ago, and I can't wait to have her come on OK Computer. And just, you know, Heather's going to be coming on next month. We were really waiting to have some of the conversations that we wanted to have with some of our favorite people in person. It's just a different environment. I'm really excited for things to be opening up and have these sorts of conversations with people in this manner here. So listen, Joe Marchese, thank you so much for joining us on OK Computer. Thanks for all the support of you and Heather and the whole human team for what we're doing with Risk Reversal Media, my man. Great, man. Good to be here. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.